What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of the hosts of the podcast, my name is Kyle Dabra. What's going on, everybody? Other half of the podcast, Kevin Valentin here. Kyle, it's a day early, but mm-hmm. we got we got so much content to put out for you guys, man. We said we got to get it a day early. Yes, sir. And you know what, Kev? It is the matchup we've been waiting for. Indeed it is. It is. The rivalry gets renewed. Not on Sunday, but on Saturday. Saturday. I don't, know, I don't know how I feel about the Saturday game, but it's a day earlier, so it's a day less that I have to wait for, and I'm totally here for it. It's going to be the Patriots versus Colts. Patriots have won every matchup since 2009. We're trying to extend that winning streak, so that's going to be a good one. I know it's going to be one of the many games we talk about, but you ready to dive into some of these games? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So with that said, Let's uh, go over some of the games that we're going to go over for week 15 in the NFL. It's kind of crazy how fast this season has gone, like week one, just like a week ago, and now we're already towards the end of the season. But we are not going to start off with the Patriots and the Colts. We're going to start off with the Chargers and the Chiefs, which is probably arguably the biggest matchup that we're going to see throughout week 15. The Chiefs are currently sitting at the top spot in the AFC West, but the Chargers are nipping at their heels at 8-5. and five. The game does take place in Los Angeles, so that'll definitely be a great game to go over, and that'll be the first one that we go over. The second one, I did just mention it just a couple seconds ago, it is going to be the Patriots and the Colts game. The Patriots have been on a fantastic winning streak for almost two months now. At the top of the AFC as far as the number one seed goes, and the Colts, they are trying to find some sort of way to get an AFC wild card spot. Maybe Tennessee could help them out if they continue to falter as far as the AFC South rankings go, but that'll definitely be an interesting game to talk about. After that, we're going to transition to the NFC East. We're going to focus on, not the Dallas Cowboys, we're going to focus on the Washington football team going up against the Philadelphia Eagles. This game is primarily focused on wild card seeding. Both teams are trying to get, make their way into the playoffs, but this is a pivotal game for both teams going into this weekend. So we'll dive into that for the third game. After that, we're going to feature the Tennessee Titans going up against the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Titans are still at the top of the AFC South, but the Steelers this is a pivotal game for them to stay not only in the AFC North conversation as far as the rankings go, but trying to work out some sort of AFC wildcard spot as well. They're the only team outside of, I think it's the Lions, that have uh, a tie with their record. So this is a game they definitely need to get. It'll be the fourth game that we go over. And then the last game that we're going to go over in week 14, in week 15, excuse me, is going to be the Cincinnati Bengals going up against the Denver Broncos. Kind of similar to what I mentioned with the game previously. Both these teams are trying to figure out a way to get into the AFC playoffs. Both teams are currently trying to vie for wild card spots. A lot of these games that we're focusing on this week, there's a lot of wild card implications with these games, and this is definitely one of them. Cincinnati has faltered. The last couple of weeks, but Denver has really been surging the last couple of weeks. So this will definitely be a huge game for both teams. That'll round out the games that we're going to talk about in week 15. And then we're going to end the episode with a basketball story in the NBA about the situation that took place between Luka Doncic and now former head coach Rick Carlisle. Rick Carlisle had been 
the head coach for the Dallas Mavericks for almost a decade, for over a decade. Uh, before 13 years. Slicko. And there was a story that was released by ESPN yesterday in regards to the relationship that Luka Doncic and Rick Carlisle had and what eventually led to the separation from Rick Carlisle and his head coaching spot with the Dallas Mavericks. That is pretty much going to be primarily... I'll, I'll set that one up for Kevin. That is his team. So I, I imagine Kevin's going to have a lot to say on that topic at hand, but we're going to round out the episode with that unless we go on some sort of tangent, which Kevin and I are always known to do every now and then. So it's kind of an art form that Kevin and I have figured out since we started this podcast together. But that is pretty much the agenda from beginning to end. So let's not waste any more time. Let's dive into some of these Week 15 games in the NFL. So like I mentioned at the top, the first game that we're going to go over is going to be the Kansas City Chiefs going up against the Los Angeles Chargers. This game is taking place on Thursday night, and it is one of the best Thursday night games that we've had in recent memory. This is definitely a game that is going to have huge ramifications in the AFC West. The Kansas City Chiefs are currently sitting at a 9-4 and record. They're at the top spot of the AFC West. But the Chargers are right behind them. They are sitting at 8-5. and five, And both of these teams would love to get a win in this one. For the Chiefs, they would pretty much win the AFC West, I would kind of assume, if they get this game. And then the Chargers and the Chiefs would be tied at the same record if the Chargers were to get this win at home in this Week 15 matchup. So, Kevin, to kick this one to you, in a huge AFC West battle that's going to take place on Thursday night, who do you have winning the Chiefs and Chargers game? So, to me, this comes down to two things. Justin Herbert, Kansas City, uh, Kansas City Chiefs defense. The Kansas City Chiefs arguably have the best defense in the NFL as of currently within their winning streak. Justin Herbert has one of the hottest arms in the NFL with his current streak over the last three to four games. Now, I know what everybody's saying. The Chiefs defense hasn't necessarily played anybody of this caliber within this win streak. And, you know, I, I, I get it, but I don't because I'm going to sit here and I'm just going to come out and say, when a defense is this confident, this consistent, and this dominant, it doesn't matter who they play. They know that as long as they can keep opponents within a certain point range and keep opposing playmakers uh, within a certain amount of uh, uh, big plays or extended plays like a quarterback, if they can keep Justin Herbert kind of uh, rolling out of the pocket, keep him consistently floating, and with that pass rush being as good as it has been with Frank Clark and Chris Jones, it's quite possible. But to get back to my point, it's just a matter of can Herbert overcome the – complexity that Steve Spagnola has been able to dial up over the last month and a half, two months. It's going to be a great matchup. When you have Pat Mahomes, when you have number 15 in red on the other side of the football, that motivates a defense even that much more because if you keep a game close within a certain point spread, Pat has the offense, the arm strength, the capability, the physical demeanor and poise to go out there and win you a football game. Now, I get it. He's not a, a, a Tom Brady or anything like that. He's not going to march down the field with, with, with 20 seconds to go. Can he? Yes. But I would be a, more fearful of an Aaron Rodgers, a uh, Tom Brady, like I said. But you still have the potential with the offense that Kansas City has in front of them. So I'm just looking to see which breaks first. Is Kansas City's defense going to fold with this being one of the best, if not the best opponents they've had within the win streak? Or is Kansas City's defense going to continue to show their dominance no matter who comes in 
to is it in Arrowhead or is it in SoFi? It's in SoFi. So that one's going to be pretty interesting as well. That's just another dynamic to the entire formula. So I I, I want to say I'm I'm just going to give it to the Chiefs. I feel like the Chiefs got a bad taste left in their mouth because the last time they played, the Chargers kind of beat them up a little bit early on in the season. The Chiefs were kind of finding their identity. Obviously, the Chiefs are a little healthier this week or this at this point in the season. Obviously, Patrick Mahomes is good. Um, the running game is good with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire being back. Uh, they are battered and bruised, I believe, on the defensive side with some minor injuries here uh, from what I read in terms of limited practices. But I think the Chiefs win this game by about seven points. Close marginal game, but it also depends if L.A.'s defense can get to Patrick Mahomes. Uh, it is going to be an interesting game as well. If Joey Bosa can make Pat's life a living hell, we might see turnover-prone Pat come back. But again, with the defense being as dominant as it has, with the run game being as successful as it has been, I believe that they're going to be a more balanced offense. I believe that the defense is going to keep it close. Patrick Mahomes is going to be able to do what he needs to do to get this road win and solidify the AFC West for what, a third or fourth consecutive year? Yeah, that's what it would uh, end up being. Um, I'm in full agreement with you. I'm going to favor the Chiefs in this one. When I look back at that first matchup that they had against the Chargers, that was a game where, to be honest with you, I think Kansas City played one of their worst games of the year against the Chargers, but the Chargers were able to take advantage of Casey's mistakes early on and punish them for it. That's why they were able to get that huge win in Arrowhead earlier in the season. Now, going into this game, Kansas City is clearly the hotter team. They've been on this win streak for a month and a half so far. And even though that offensively, they've looked decent in stretches, sometimes they look absolutely phenomenal, especially when they play against the Raiders. But there have been times where this Kansas City offense, which is so high-powered, it's so explosive, has sputtered at times, specifically against the Giants at home. They struggled against Jordan Love and the Green Bay Packers at home. So it really kind of is dependent on which Kansas City offense is going to show up. Is it going to be the one that plays well against the Raiders, or is it going to be the one that plays against the Giants or the Packers and can barely get up 15, 20 points in that game? I think this is a matchup where I think they're going to learn from their mistakes that they made against the Chargers earlier in the season. Now, I don't know if they're going to put up 40 points like they did against the Raiders in these last couple of matchups they had against Las Vegas. But I do think that Kansas City is going to be solid as far as running the football with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, Daryl Williams, even Derek Gore. And I think Patrick Mahomes is going to have a solid game. It's just whether or not that they don't turn the ball over. In that first matchup, Kansas City turned the ball over frequently in that game. I don't believe that it's going to be the case in this one. And you combine it with what that defense has been providing Kansas City for the last month and a half. I mean, that defense has been phenomenal since they've started this winning streak. They're getting to the point now where they're only giving up 10 to 12 points per game throughout this win streak. Defensively, you really can't ask for anything more from that unit. Now, I do think that this is going to be their toughest task that they've had as far as going up against another high-powered offense against the Chargers throughout this win streak. But I do think that Kansas City is well-equipped to handle it, to slow down Justin Herbert, Austin, Austin Eckler, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams. I think it'll be enough to get by them. I do think it's going to be a close game like the first matchup that they had against each other was. But I do think that Kansas City is going to come out on top. 
I think it's going to be a relatively close game. I think it's going to end up being a one-position game. But I do think that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to win this one by the score of, I'm going to say 27-20 to 20 in this one. I don't think either team cracks 30. And I think it's going to be in large part that both defenses are going to be able to slow down the opposing offenses. And I think with, when it's all said and done, I think KC improves to 10 and four on the season. They improve their winning streak. And even though that I have the chargers losing this one, I don't have, I'm not losing all of my faith in them from missing the playoffs. They're definitely still in the mix to get a wild card spot. I just don't see them getting this win against KC though in this week 15 matchup. It's going to be definitely the matchup of the week, at least for in terms of week 15, in my opinion. But there's just so much going on this Sunday. Kyle and I were talking about it literally just as the episode was coming, you know, just as we're formulating the agenda. This is probably the most jam-packed Sunday we've had all season. And it's kind of crazy how it's legitimately at the end. And it's kind of better that way because there's so many playoff implications that are within this one week that it is make or break for so many teams. And we've discussed the matchups that we're going to talk about. And there are some matchups that we do want to continue to mention uh, kind of throughout the episode, but there's just not enough time. We would literally be here for three hours. But there are more games that are playoff pivotal than just the five that we're talking about today. So, uh, you know, we we have a lot to kind of get into. So without further ado, uh, obviously the next game is the game that Kyle and I are looking forward to the most. When the Patriots and the Colts play each other, at least since Kyle and I have known each other, we haven't had a win. The Colts have not won a game against the Patriots since the Kevin Falk Melvin Bullet tackle on a fourth and two call in twenty in two thousand and nine, which obviously, I mean, what was that? Jim Caldwell. That was the year that we went to the Super Bowl against the Saints, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So it's been long a long time, time since long we've time. gotten a fucking win, right? Um, guys, there's, there's there's a lot of things that are in this situation. Obviously, if New England loses and Kansas City wins, um, they fall out of the number one seed. If we win, we inch closer to a solidified wild card spot. Again, it's nothing guaranteed for us, but it does help our chances to kind of stay in that frame of mind. It is in Lucas Oil, so it does bode well for us, at least in terms of fan base. But Kyle, dude, I I, got to ask you straight up. I know normally you're the one posing the questions to me. What does Bill Belichick and Mac Jones need to do in order to win this football game? Well, I think the biggest thing is is that they have to control the time of possession and they have to limit their turnovers. Because even though that the Colts aren't at the top spot of the AFC South, this team has been on a resurgent run. We're second. Second okay. on the AFC South. Yeah. What did I say? Top spot. I, I, I thought I said that uh, they weren't in the top spot. No. But whatever. It <laughs> doesn't matter. Whatever. doesn't matter. But going into this game, I think the biggest thing is, you know, with Mac Jones in the offense, they have to make sure that they just control the pace of the game. And the biggest thing that I see as far as New England's offense goes is they have to control the line of scrimmage. If they can get a good push with the offensive line to open up running lanes for Damian Harris or Madre Stevenson, that's going to be huge for the Patriots moving forward. And then you would have to think that with Mac Jones in the pocket, if he's able to get a clean pocket for the majority of the game, he's going to be able to exploit some holes in that Indianapolis Colts defense. Now, that's on the offensive side of the ball. The defensive side of the ball, it's going to be a lot trickier because the way that I see it, Indianapolis has arguably 
the best offensive line in the entire NFL. And the reason why I say that is because look at the success that Jonathan Taylor has had this season. He is running away with the rushing yard leader this year as far as just leading the league in rushing yards. And it's not even close at this point. And it's in large part due to what that offensive line has been able to do as far as just opening up run lanes for Jonathan Taylor to exploit. That is going to be absolutely pivotal in that line of scrimmage battle between the Colts O-line and the Patriots defensive line. And there have been many times where New England has been exposed as far as their run defense goes. And this is one of those matchups where I think that if the Colts offensive line controls the line of scrimmage against that Patriots front four, it is going to be a long day for that Patriots defense because I think Jonathan Taylor, Naheem Hines, they could definitely have some pretty solid days as far as their production goes against New England. Now, when you tie all those factors together, this is going to be a very competitive game. I don't think this is going to be a game where either team really runs away with it as far as a blowout goes. But I do have to favor New England in this one just because I do think that Bill Belichick is going to be able to slow down that Colts running attack. I think they're going to stack the box. They're going to force Carson Wentz to beat them. And we've seen Carson Wentz have a pretty solid year, but he has had some moments where he's made some horrendous mistakes and it has cost the Indianapolis Colts some games this year. So I don't have a lot of faith that Carson's going to be able to execute in critical moments of the game. If New England's able to take Jonathan Taylor away from that uh, that run game as far as the Colts offense goes. So it's going to be a tricky situation for Indianapolis to try to get Carson into good situations for him to execute properly. But with the way that I see, I see new England winning a close one. I don't think this is going to be a blowout. Like I said, I'm looking at a 28 to 24 score for new England. This would be a huge road win for them. It would, it's, it would, maintain their number one seed in the AFC, but it is going to be a competitive game, and I'm looking forward to this one. This is going to be a great game between the Patriots and the Colts. There's no doubt about that. So normally in our history, at least in in my lifetime, uh, a lot of the Colt-Patriot games as of recent have been competitive battles. I mean, excluding the, you know, fourth down escapade with that fake punt, whatever the hell happened a few years back, um, and of course, the AFC Championship with the Flake Gate, which didn't matter because what was it, Sonny? What was his name? Sonny Gray or whatever. Jonas Gray. Jonas, that was- Jonas Gray. Yeah, Jonas Gray. It, like nothing made a difference. We were they ran all over us. All, all actually, that Jonas Gray game was not the AFC Championship. That was, those, game that those, were two di- those were two different games. Two different games. Nevertheless, of they're, they're normally really, really good games. Is the point I was trying to make. But of course, I actually forgot that we got our asses handed to us a couple of times in those games. So I, I retract my statement. It's been a little bit inconsistent on our part. So what I'm looking for here is Frank. Listen with me. Look at me. Work with me. Think. Just focus. Run the fucking football. I get it. They gonna stack the box, bro. If they put eleven motherfuckers in the box. Run the fucking football. Just, 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 just give it a chance. You know what I'm saying? Just to don't, don't, don't. I've been saying this to Kyle since the the matchup was on the calendar, since the schedule was made, and we made the move for Carson Wentz. Do not try to outcoach Bill Belichick. No coach in NFL history has been able to do that. Oh, well, he's lost in the Super Bowl three times. That's not getting outcoached. One was an absolute shootout where there was no defense played. One was a, a catch on a helmet, and the other one was a catch 
falling out of bounds with feet like tapping in one of the two of the greatest catches in arguably Super Bowl history. So it, it, it takes a lot to beat this guy. You know what I'm saying? And it took a, a Philly Philly, a fake play to go and take a lead in a Super Bowl to go out and do what they did. Once again, the point of the matter is there is no coach that can out coach Bill Belichick. Stick to your guns. This is going to be purely and solely a battle of the trenches. Who will dominate the line of scrimmage? The Patriots have a great pass rush with Matt Judon and the rest of that cast. And they also have capable and honest, worthy corners with uh, Jesse Jackson, right? That's his name? JC JC Jackson. JC Jackson, who leads the NFL in interceptions with Trayvon Diggs. So it's not like they don't have talent in all levels. You know, they definitely have the availability to go out there and make plays happen on that side of the football. So Carson has to take advantage, read the defense. If New England decides to play man coverage, take advantage where you can. And if they play zone, poke holes in the zone where you can. But as Kyle already reiterated, it's going to be a run-heavy focus game. It has to be. Because if it isn't, I'm not going to be okay. I'm going to be on vacation that weekend, so watching the game is going to be a little bit difficult. Guys, it's my brother's 21st birthday. I'll watch what I can on, his, on my phone wherever we are, but it's going to be difficult. The point of the matter is, if we don't run the football assertively, if Jonathan Taylor doesn't have 25 to 35 touches in terms of carries, I'm going to be pissed. Now, again, this kind of falters into the side of, well, if the defense has given up 21 points out there to Mac Jones and their running attack, then of course we're not going to be able to run the football because we're going to be down. So if it ends up falling into the hands of Carson Wentz, I lose confidence. I'm actually predicting us to lose this football game because I do not believe that Frank Reich can call a consistent game. And I know that sounds negative, and I know that sounds like I'm giving up on my team. And I said the same thing about Buffalo. But they surprised me, and they ran Jonathan Taylor almost 30 times. He had five touchdowns. When you do that, you win. And at the time, Buffalo statistically had one of the best defenses, if not the best-ranked defense in the NFL. And that showed Frank, hey, we got to keep doing that. But then you go and you play Tampa a few weeks later, and you forget how to do that. So it's like this is what I'm talking about. When we play good teams, it's hit or miss. We're also three and four at home this season. We've also blown three 10-point games this season alone. So excuse me if I have a, a lack of faith in my favorite football team when I don't believe that our head coach is capable of calling a straightforward game. So we win the game, in my opinion, if Jonathan has almost 30 carries, if not more. We lose the game if Carson's throwing the ball 45 to 50 times. I don't see that as a successful formula. I also don't see this defense being able to stop the – What's the word? The committee that New England has back there with Damian Harris and Stevenson and Brandon Bolden. And of course, you know, obviously Mac Jones being able to be a great game manager is another piece that is just, you know, I feel like slept on in New England. I feel like he's doing a very good job with all of the pressure that he's had on his shoulders. But yeah, I, I, I agree with Kyle. I think this game's going to falter to about maybe a, a seven. I, I think it's going to be a seven to 10 point game, maybe. 30 to 20, 31, 21, something of that magnitude. I just, I genuinely have no faith in Frank Reich. And it's sad because the talent on this football team is absolutely incredible. We arguably have the best running back in the NFL. We arguably have one of the best offensive lines in football. We have one of the most above averages in terms of defenses in the NFL. And all of these pieces are only getting older. And I feel like their careers are just being wasted. We also are not, I'm not confident in uh I don't I don't believe that our special teams is going to be able to capitalize um just lately I don't know with, with Bagley he missed a couple of field goals and extra points uh the last two weeks or so so I'm a little nervous there but we'll we'll see what happens on that front
I mean, if Indianapolis is smart, they take New England's own playbook that they ran against Buffalo, where they ran the ball 45 times. And that's what I think Frank Reich should do against that New England front four. That front four for New England, granted, they do get a decent pass rush, but their run defense is subpar. I mean, we even saw the running backs from the Tennessee Titans, which was Deontay Foreman, and I forget the other running back that they had. Hellman, right? Something like that? I I forget the guy's name. But both those guys, imagine if Derrick Henry was running up and down those lanes instead of the backup running backs that Tennessee had going up against New England. I mean, Derrick Henry could have put up 200 yards rushing in that game because Tennessee's offensive line was so effective in that game. Now, with the Colts, they have the advantage with their offensive line against New England's defensive line. It's just, I think New England is going to stack the box with at least seven guys. And they're going to force Carson Wentz to beat them. That's the game plan. They are not going to, they're going to stack the box and they are not going to let Jonathan Taylor pop off for 125, 150 yards, even 175 yards. And if he does, good on them. But that's not the game plan that New England is going to have. They're going to take that run game away from Indianapolis and they're going to let Carson Wentz beat them if, if he can actually do that. So, I mean, we've said it time and time again. Bill Belichick will take away what you do best, or at least try to. And you got to be able to adjust. And it looks like it's going to be on Carson Wentz's shoulders to get this one done. Now, if Jonathan Taylor pops off, that's great for Indianapolis. And that would definitely favor them going into this game. I just don't see that happening. I think Jonathan Taylor's still going to get around 15 to 20 carries. I'd be surprised if he gets to 25. But if they're able to run the ball consistently against New England, I think they could definitely have a shot. I just think going into this game, Bill Belichick is going to take that aspect of their game away from them. And I, and I don't think Carson Wentz is going to be able to get past that New England secondary. That New England secondary is very turnover hungry. And they're, they're one of the best teams in turning the ball over against opposing offenses. So... I As are we, like, we lead, we we lead the NFL in, in takeaways. So I mean, like it's not our, like our defense is bad, but I, I, I it, it's different though when it your secondary being interception and ball hawk heavy, and yeah. if you're going to force Carson to throw that football, we all know what happens when Carson's put under pressure. He throws fucking left handed, or he just makes inappropriate, ill advised decisions trying to extend the play when he should take a sack or throw the ball away. So it it's going to be a great game. I'm looking yes. forward to it. I have it a little bit closer than you do. I think it's just because I think Indianapolis knows this is pretty much make or break. This is a game they have to have. And I think the Colts are definitely going to keep it close, but I think New England's going to find a way to get past them. But but I don't think that we should just write off Indianapolis in this game. They can win this game. We have the I, talent. I just, we, we're very capable. I'm, I'm definitely not saying that. Can you blame me? For being this the, the way that I am, bro. We do this every week, every single week. We do this where we say it every fucking episode. Why didn't you run the ball more? Or this is how you win football games. It's never an in between. It's never damn. They ran him thirty times. He averaged three point four yards per carry. They just couldn't move the football. No, it's either Jonathan Taylor busted busted wide open for all intents and purposes, and he's averaging seven yards carry. Or he's averaging 5.4 on 16 touches when you know he damn well could have had almost eight yards per carry, but you stop feeding him because you want to fucking outcoach somebody. 
There is no bad football game for Jonathan Taylor. He has not had a bad football game all year long. I think he has a total of two fumbles on the year and only lost one of them. So let's be honest and frank here when I say that this, the reason I am the way that I am is because of Frank and his lack of consistency in play calling for our offense. The defense always finds a way to get a stop, whether that's a Darius Leonard punch out, an interception, a strip sack from somebody in the clutch out of nowhere, whether that be Kamiko Ture, DeForest Buckner, Quiddy Pay. We have a, an average NFL pass rush at best, which is better than last year or the recent years because we've had a below pass, pass rush since Robert Mathis retired. But the point of the matter is we have a capable football team to go in there and beat New England. But when you're literally reliant upon – one man that doesn't even play a snap, that's detrimental to an entire organization. And he's extended until 2025. I wish it was, I wish I was able to laugh about this and joke about it, but it's never because somebody makes a bad play outside of Carson's stupid plays here and again. He's got five total interceptions. He's got two fumbles this year, seven turnovers. That's less than Patrick Mahomes. That's less than Lamar Jackson. That's less than Ben Roethlisberger. But, when have those turnovers occurred? At the worst in tune times. But, 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 why are we in those situations? Because Frank didn't run the football earlier in the game or because he leaned on Carson and said, you know what? You're my best friend. I want you to be successful. So I'm going to draw up 16 consecutive pass plays to make you look like a star when I know that I have an MVP right over there, but don't tell him we're doing that. Just tell him in the huddle and then run the play anyway. That's what I feel like he does because at this point, Jonathan Taylor's got to be looking at the huddles in there and looking at the play calls as they're coming through from Carson. Like, bro, I just broke off two 20-yard runs. We're at the goal line. It is third and goal, and you want to run a play-action shovel play inside? Are you kidding me? Like, that's, that's what Frank thinks of. You know what I mean? That's the problem. You're trying to be too fancy. Let's go back to 1978 football and run the goddamn thing right up the middle of the offensive line, in which has shown to be productive all year. Yes, I am now angry. Yes, but, you know, with Frank, you never know what you're going to get. So if they're smart, they just look at the playbook that New England ran against Buffalo and just, you know what, Let's go to, we're going to do that. I'm not saying you have to run the ball 45 times. I'd like it, but that's not going to happen. If if they're able to run the ball 25, 30 times, I think you'd be thrilled. I think you'd be thrilled. I mean, hell, I mean, they're coming out with hats that say run the damn ball, for God's sake. Those have been out since Quentin Nelson was a rookie. But now it's actually kind of been like a focal point. It's like, all right, Frank, you have a great running back, yet you don't really use him to the full extent that you can those words seem to hit a little bit more deeper now than ever. Yeah. Knowing that Jonathan Taylor, I mean, wasn't it like a week or two ago where Quentin Nelson was like telling Frank that hey, at the, at the Tampa Jonathan, game, we, we need Jonathan Taylor to like pop off like he's hungry. Yeah, I legit. He said, "Can we can we run the football, please?" Like he, like, why does my All Pro offensive guard have to beg my head coach to run the football? Like, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen that like there's playful jokes on the sideline there's jabs and and you know like comments made throughout football games oh, everybody does that if you have a good relationship with your coach I don't think I've ever seen an offensive lineman beg to run a play because of his head coach's inability to be able to read the situation I mean to me it's common sense genuinely I know we've been talking about this for the last 10-15 minutes at this point but 
it's it's what I feel is most prevalent in this game because we can't do it consistently. It's gonna be a fun game on Saturday, which is kind of weird. Like I'm yeah, totally saying Saturday. I'm totally fine with that because it's a day earlier, but still, I don't know. It's, it's just that Saturday matchup was a little bit weird to me, but I'll take it. So it's going to be a standalone game. So everybody's going to be watching that one. So I'll definitely be ready for that one. But with that said, we're going to transition into our third game, which is going to be the Washington football team going up against the Philadelphia Eagles. So to give you guys a preview of this game, both teams are currently sitting at a six and seven record. They're doing miles better than last year because last year, I mean, the NFC East was a complete tire fire. So, I mean, I guess this is an improvement from last year. But both teams are looking to find a way to get into the NFC wildcard chase. It does seem like Dallas has a clear advantage over the rest of the division as far as the number one spot goes. But still, this is going to be a game that is going to be absolutely pivotal for both teams going into week 15. So, Kevin, to kick this one to you. In the matchup between the Washington football team and the Philadelphia Eagles, who do you have coming out on top and why? Well, both teams are pretty ba- both teams are pretty battered and bruised. I saw the injury report this morning for Philly. I also saw that there were a lot of COVID cases going around the NFL and that Taylor Heineke was out, um, I believe, late in that game against Dallas, as well as Logan Thomas officially being ruled out with a torn ACL and a couple of other people here and there being injured on the Washington side. So... It's going to be who steps up. It's going to be next man up. It is going to be who is able to run the ball efficiently. Um, Miles Sanders is limited for the Eagles with an ankle injury. Jordan Howard is limited with a knee injury. So this is going to come down to basically Boston Scott, and I believe the rookie is Gainwell, Kenneth Gainwell, in terms of running the ball. I'm not saying that neither of the two backs that I mentioned first, and Jordan and uh, Miles will not play. But when you have lower leg injuries this late in the season, and and what's going to be, I would predict, to be a very physical divisional game that's going to determine your playoff outcome, um, to be very difficult for them to run consistently. So Jalen Hurts, Taylor Heineke, again, both quarterbacks are hurt. Uh, Jalen with an ankle injury that caused him to miss last week. And then, of course, Taylor Heineke exiting last week's game against Dallas. I don't know the significance of that injury, but I do know that that is going to also make a difference. So... We're going to have to see. Um, I'm going to be a little biased here. I'm going to say that Philadelphia is going to find a way to get it done. I just think the Philadelphia defense is just a little bit better. The fact that Darius Slay is having an all-pro caliber year, Fletcher Cox is playing very well. And, you know, I think that the Eagles are playing good football as of recently, uh, especially when they are able to run the ball similarly to the Colts. Um, if they're running the ball 30 to 35 times as a team, I believe they're averaging almost 160 to 175 yards per game. So, That's pretty big for a team overall. I know that Jalen Hurts has a lot of those rushing yards himself, but I know that that does make a difference overall in terms of the team's complete output. So I'm going to say Philadelphia wins a close one. And the reason I say a close one is because of the injuries. And I don't know who is really going to be able to step up for both teams just because of all of those. So I say Philly wins on a field goal late. Jake Elliott's pretty clutch. And I also believe that Philadelphia being home is going to be a a difference maker. Yeah, this is a a tough one for me because – Kevin, let's be honest. Do both of these teams really thrill us? No. I wouldn't say particularly. But there have been moments where I think both teams have shown some flashes of some future potential. But that's pretty much it. Both these teams are pretty middle road. But in this matchup, I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to go with the Eagles in a close one. 
Now, the one thing that's going to be interesting ahead of this game is obviously the availability of Jalen Hurts. He's been dealing with an ankle in injury for the last week and a half or so. And going into this game, both Jalen Hurts and Gardner Minshew have been splitting reps at practice ahead of this matchup. So it'll be interesting to see who's going to get the, the starting spot in this matchup against Washington. I would imagine if Jalen Hurts is healthy and ready to go, that he, that he'll get the start. But I have to say that I thought Gardner Minshew, I thought he filled in pretty well in the game for the Eagles when they went up to MetLife Stadium and gave the Jets an ass-whooping last week in Week 14. So with Philly, if they're able to run the ball effectively like you mentioned, I think they'll be okay. It's just whether or not that Nick Sirianni is going to have that in the playbook going into this weekend, or it's just as far as the game plan goes, because there have been times where we have seen Nick Sirianni rely heavily on Jalen Hurts and that RPO that they run, and they don't really run what you would consider like a traditional running back set. It's mostly a, a college-based offense in that regard, and it has kind of gone to their hindrance to a certain extent just because it kind of leaves that offense one-dimensional. So kind of seeing just the availability of the quarterback situation with Jalen Hurts is going to be an interesting one for me. But I still think that the Eagles will come out on top. And that's despite the fact that I thought Washington, they've been playing pretty well of late. Granted, their four-game winning streak did come to an end last week. And, you know, both teams have been dealing with injury issues the entire year. You know, Chase Young is not going to be in this game. He's been out for the last couple of weeks with the torn ACL. Logan Thomas is out for the rest of the year with a torn ACL. So really just, it kind of seems like Washington, these injuries are starting to mount. And I just don't think it's going to be enough to get past the Eagles in this one. I think it's going to be a relatively close game. I think Philly is going to win this one by about four to seven points. And as far as the score goes, I'm going to say that the Eagles win this one by the score of, I'm going to say 24 to 17. I don't think it's going to be a high scoring game, but I think, as long as the Eagles don't turn the ball over and they m maintain a good time of possession against Washington, I think it'll be enough to get past uh, past Washington. And it would get them back to a 500 record, and really that's kind of the best thing that you could hope for in these last couple weeks of the season. But I do have the Eagles winning this one in a close one. With the NFC wildcard being such a tight race, every game is going to be pivotal for the rest of the season. Obviously, you got San Fran at 7-6. and six. Washington at six and seven, Philly at six and seven. I mean, there are just countless teams that are literally fighting just to get in. And this being a divisional game makes this game that much more meaningful because if Dallas does decide to slip in Dallas fashion this late in the season, this is going to be, you know, this is going to poise somebody to take advantage. And if I'm not mistaken, the NFC East plays each other for the final three games of the season. So every single game matters here. So like I said, this game, I feel like, has a little bit more intensity than most just because they're tied and because of the division situation. But nevertheless, a good football game is coming, and that's all that matters to me. Yeah, and it's just, it is kind of wild, like, how the whole schedule worked out for the end of the year for the NFC East, where all the NFC East teams are going to be playing each other from, I think, was what, from now until the end of the season. Mm -hmm. It is kind of wild how that whole situation worked out. But no, I think it's going to be. A competitive game. I think it's going to be a close game from beginning to end, but I, I just favor the Eagles in this one. I think they, 
I think offensively, they have a little bit more firepower than Washington. Washington, despite the fact that they went on that winning streak, they weren't really explosive. They did enough to get by, but it was by and large, their defense was able to get the opposing offense off the field. You know, sometimes it takes just that to get some wins as far as Washington's concerned. But in this one, I I favored the Eagles in this one, but it's going to be a close game. So I think the Eagles are going to have to earn it. But yeah, I, I just don't see a scenario where I think Washington gets this win. Just too many injuries have been racking up for Washington this year. And it's kind of unfortunate because had Chase Young kind of been in that rotation throughout that winning streak, I think they would have been able to prevent to present a much more formidable force defensively than they did, even despite the fact I thought their defense in that four-game winning streak was pretty solid. But, you know, with that said, we're going to transition to our fourth matchup, which is going to be the Titans versus the Steelers. So to give you guys a preview of this game, the Titans are currently the number one team in the AFC South going into this matchup against the Steelers. And then when we kick it over to the Steelers, the Steelers are sitting in last place of the AFC North. Do kind of take that with a grain of salt, though, because the AFC North has been very competitive from top to bottom, even though that the Steelers are in last place of the AFC North. They are still in the mix compared to the Bengals, compared to the Browns and the Ravens as well. So this is an absolutely pivotal game for the Steelers going into this one. And Kevin, I'm going to kick this one to you. Is this a do-or-die game for the Steelers against the Titans in this Week 15 matchup? Absolutely. This is for all the marbles. The AFC wildcard spot is also getting tight in and of itself. Um, Pittsburgh kind of choked at the end with that drop pass in the end zone on, uh, I believe, what was it, Monday night? No, that was the Thursday night game for last week, correct? Yes. Yeah, so they, they, they really were in control of their own destiny. And once again, Kyle and I have talked about this a number of times. It is absolutely... I'm going to use one of Kyle's, word, Kyle's words, asinine, that Pittsburgh decides to play football only in the fourth quarter. Like, legit, I feel like if they were down 50 by some, by some miracle of God, they'd put themselves in a one-possession game. Their offense just comes alive. That defense decides to literally give it everything they have. I feel like they got a motivational speech from, like, Optimus Prime or something that, that makes them feel like they can do anything because – they overcome double-digit deficits on, on, on Kyle a weekly basis at this point. I feel like it's incredible, and 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 that's just not going to cut it against one of the AFC's best teams. And I understand that you know um, Ryan Tannehill has been struggling as of late. Julio Jones has been in and out of the lineup. AJ Brown has been in and out of the lineup. But with Pittsburgh just as a whole team being inconsistent, one week their defense is stellar. TJ Watt has been hurt and in and out of this lineup as well. There are signs that Ben Roethlisberger still has potential. I mean, for God's sakes, I think he had almost 350 yards last week. Um, he had three passing touchdowns and one interception, and I believe that one pick was a tip pass or just a ball that was just a, a hair overthrown. I can't remember what it was. But the point of the matter is this team is good. This team can compete in the AFC. But because of the ups and downs that they've had, including the tie to Detroit earlier on in the year, that does not give me enough faith to go out and make a prediction that Pittsburgh will win. So I'm going to say Tennessee wins this game by about 7 to 10 points just because Tennessee has been the more consistent team, and I feel like their offense is going to be able to move the ball freely up and down the field, dependent on if T.J. Watt will be available for this game with a groin injury. 
I'm actually going to go the other way here. I'm actually going to go with the Steelers in this one. Now, I'm going with the Steelers in this one because I pray to God that this happens. The Steelers get off to a good start and they play a full 60 minutes instead of playing 15. Because that game against the Vikings, the first half that the Steelers played against them was utterly atrocious. I mean, Kevin, wasn't it 29 nothing at halftime? If I remember uh, correctly, 20, 29, three or something, something very minuscule. It, it, it was atrocious. There's no other way to say it. And then by some grace of God, they come alive in the fourth quarter. I mean, they rise like freaking Lazarus and they just come back and damn near steal a game against Minnesota in dramatic fashion. Now against the Titans, I think this is actually a game where the Steelers can actually play up to snuff in this one because even though the Tennessee, they are kind of like holding, they're kind of like treading water with not having Derrick Henry in the lineup. I think that this Pittsburgh defense can be able to create turnovers against this Tennessee offense. And I think there's some situations where I think if that pass rush gets home for the Steelers, I think they could force some errant passes from Ryan Tannenhill. And there have been times this year where we have seen Ryan Tannenhill make some mistakes, make some bad passes, and it's led to some interceptions against that opposing defense that they're going up against. And I do think that the Steelers have the right pieces in place to make those plays happen. That pass rush, I think, can get home, can definitely create some problems for Ryan Tannenhill and that Titans offense. But the main point that I'm focusing on with the Steelers pick is the offense needs to get off to a hot start. Chase Claypool needs to stop acting immature and needs to focus and get into the game and keep some level of focus and discipline going into this game. For God's sakes, if he does any more bullshit like he did against the Vikings at the end of the game, I swear to God that Mike Thomas should just cut him and just call it a day dealing with this level of immaturity from a child or he's like acting like one. It's absolutely ridiculous. But it's my boy. Don't get me started on Chase Claypool. Kyle knows I'm ready for the smoke with that man. I might get I might get uh, Kevin a Chase Claypool jersey if he keeps it up like that for Christmas. We'll see what happens. Oh, but, don't play with me. But you know, we'll see what happens. But as far as the pick goes, the Steelers are going to win this one in a close one. I don't think this is a game where they run away with it. But I'm going to say the Steelers win this one by the score of. I have this one really, like really low scoring. I think this is going to be like 21 to 17. It's going to be a really low scoring game, but I think it's because Pittsburgh is going to get some turnovers and they're going to be able to capitalize off of Tennessee's mistakes and do enough to get by them. But it's going to be a relatively close game. And that's just the way that I have it in this week 15 matchup against the Tennessee Titans and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Love for Tennessee to lose. Don't get me wrong. I would. I mean, you know, I need them to lose to have any type of hope for the Colts to get somewhat in back in the AFC South race, but I don't believe that's possible. However, yeah. I saw miracle of God. If Pittsburgh does me the favor, I will be eternally grateful. Kevin, I, I think we have to just, just expand on just one point before we go into our next game. What is your, what is your devotion to Chase Claypool? Like, what is the, what is the main reason behind why you love Chase Claypool so much. Listen, listen, listen. Me and Chase are boys, right? Me and Chase, me and, no, we're not. I, I genuinely despise Chase Claypool. Like, with, <laughs> with the burning passion of a thousand suns. Because he just comes across as a generational 
arrogant, cocky. I can't even say the word because it's just just not appropriate. He comes across like an asshole. Okay, let's just put it in layman's terms. Last year, before they played the Browns in the playoffs, Chase was being interviewed, whether that was after practice, before practice, whatever, and they said, you know, what are your thoughts on playing the Browns in the postseason? Oh, they're the Browns. We're really focused on to next week. Or, or, or it's just the Browns. I'm not worried. Something to the effect of where he completely, like, did not pay attention to the Browns or, like, dismissed the relevance that they were in the play- playoffs. The Browns then proceeded to whoop that ass in Pittsburgh. And then Chase was then asked after the game how he think that went based off of his comments. Oh, they got lucky. Everyone has... A, a game, you know, everybody wins once in a while, or they're still the Browns. Again, I'm paraphrasing. I don't have direct quotes. But once again, disrespecting a team that he himself shelved and disregarded. Immaturity. Then you go into this season, and he has been known to be very immature in the locker room, doing TikTok dances, all of these stupid-ass things. Him and Juju both piss me off. And it's just, again, showing the youth inexperience and lack of leadership that's in that locker room. I know Ben is there, but the fact that he's going around and doing these things and no one's pulling his coat and saying, cut it out. You're a fucking professional athlete. This isn't college anymore at your age. He made the comment earlier this year about having music at practice, to which Mike Mike Tomlin then reported, let him focus on his job. I'll worry about practice. Bro, why are you bitching about making practice fun? It's work, bro. You get paid millions of dollars. I get it's a sport and it's supposed to be fun, but we need you to focus. At the time, they were under 500, and it, 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 you're literally going to sit here and complain about fucking practice. Well, we need practices to be more fun so we can better blah, 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 blah. Whatever, right? Last week, it is in the fourth quarter with no timeouts. He converts on a fourth down, and he celebrates with the first down marker. Instead of running back to the line of scrimmage to spike the ball or get the ball spiked, clock the, you know, get the clock to stop, right? Immaturity. Everybody was yelling at him, looking at him like, what the fuck are you doing? Chase Claypool literally shoots himself in the foot every single week, in my opinion, and it hasn't gotten any better, and I agree with Kyle completely. If he continues this, this immaturity and this just stupidity on the field and off the field, bro, they got to cut him, man. Whatever potential you may or may not have, whatever you can put onto the football field in terms of physical talent, I'm not giving you a pass. We're just going to keep acting like a 12-year-old. You want to act like an asshole, go be a professional TikTok dancer, bro. You get paid a decent amount of money. So, um, yeah, if you want to play football, shut the fuck up and go play the sport because I'm tired of your stupid antics, man. That, bro, I'm not even a Steelers fan. And I'm watching that live with my girl's dad. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what goes through your mind in that instance that you feel the need to celebrate? Did you forget you're in the fourth quarter? That was like JR pulling the ball back in the finals. I know it's not to the significance of it being for a championship, but it's like a brain airheaded move like that where you're just like not paying attention to the situation. And you just have no awareness. I'm absolutely done with Chase Claypool. I've never liked him from the beginning, but... He literally is just like, if he were to disappear from the NFL, I wouldn't even care. Mm. See, I knew you had some burning passion for uh, for Chase Claypool. I, I, I knew it was somewhere. But, um, yeah, it's just childish. He's just childish out in the field. And just at the worst times possible. And for somebody like that to be making those critical mistakes at the most inopportune times... I'm surprised that Mike Tomlin is really like 
tolerated. I, 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 yeah, I can't believe that it's kind of gone on this long, and he's like still like an active, like he has a huge role on that team. But you know, Juju's out for the rest of the year. You know, the number one guy is probably Deontay Johnson, and then after that is probably Chase. But I'm like, dude, you, dude, to, to, to put it, it in layman's sick. terms. Jonas Gray, what we talked about earlier, had a 200-yard running game, four touchdowns, absolutely annihilated the Colts, right? Career-setting performance, was definitely going to get the nod to at least get more touches consistently, if not become the starter that year, because you guys were inconsistent at the running back position, if I remember correctly, in that season. Mm-hmm. He shows up late to practice the next game. Belichick suspends him. He back talks Belichick and then they cut him. Mm-hmm. That is the type of mentality that organizations need to have because I am signing millions of dollars to you to be on time and to play your heart out. If you can't do either and give me mutual respect as your head coach, bro, there's no room for you in any organization. And that, again, that's, that's the youth. Mike Tomlin has been a tenured coach for a very, very long time, but he is one of the younger coaches in the league. And I think that his leash or his his patience meter is a little too high because Chase has been acting like a whole asshole for the last two seasons. And it literally could have cost him the game last week. But obviously I can't say it's 100% his fault because the tight end, I forget his name, dropped the pass in the end zone, but with a perfect ball. So you can say in part, it could have been Claypool's fault because, you know, maybe a little bit more time in the clock, he could have developed a little bit more of a strategy, you know, different plays, whatever. But what are you going to do? That's just my opinion. I am, I, am, I am but a man who has a podcast with a friend that likes to talk about sports two, three times a week. So I just I, – I'm just here. You're just here. You're just in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think Chase Claypool uh, – Chase Claypool was in the moment last week against the Vikings, in his moment. Not yeah. the team's Let him keep being in the moment. You're going to be in the moment on your couch unemployed because you're being an asshole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, one more slip up, maybe. But knowing my time. Shouldn't even gotten to this point. I mean, my time was a good coach. But the, Great antics, coach. the antics have got to stop with this. Like, you, you got to put your foot down. It's like, dude, you do this again. We're going to cut you. But I don't know if my time was going to do that because I, I, he knows what Chase is actually capable of. And he's a good receiver. Like when he's when he's running and going, when he's locked he's, in. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good receiver, but it's it's kind of like what Ryan Clark said. He's physically overdeveloped, but he's kind of like mentally underdeveloped as far as just his mindset as a as an NFL football player goes. It's just it's just unfortunate because the dude is a real talent. It's just he doesn't utilize it to the best of his abilities. I loved every second of that take. I thought it was great. Hey, that's a former Steeler going at him. Can't say nothing. That boy won a, he bought, he won a ring. Can't say nothing. Yep. Did Ryan but, win both, or did he retire before the second one? The other one. No. I, I don't think, know if he ever won. I don't know if he ever won one. I don't think he ever won one. He, he was, did, was Ryan good. Clark was on the team with the Arizona for the Arizona team. That was probably early on in his career. I don't think he was there for the, the for the first the, one. The Seattle one, yeah, no, he wasn't there for the Seattle one. I don't think I, so. He, I mean, he, I'll look it up. I don't think so, though. If he was, it was very early on. But I, 
I'd be bugging to say if if he wasn't on that. Uh, I think that, he's got one. For I think sure. he's, yeah. I think I think it's that oh nine the um not the oh nine one the oh eight one. I'm pretty sure he was on that team. Yeah, I think he should have. Uh, he's got one. Yeah, because that was that 2008 one. It was the Santonio Holmes one. Yeah, that was uh Super Bowl 43. Yep. The one of the greatest after. catches. Yep. It was the year after the Patriot one. I'll never forget that one. Mm-hmm. Mm, st- it still pains me to this day, bro. I don't blame you. But with that said, we're going to transition into our last game of topic, and that will be the Week 15 matchup of the Cincinnati Bengals going up going up against the Denver Broncos. So to give you guys a preview of this game, both of these teams are currently sitting at 7-6. Kind of similar to what we've been talking about with a lot of these games at this point. These This game in particular is a very big AFC wildcard implication game. Both teams are both trying to vie for a wildcard spot moving forward just because I think both teams are kind of going to be out of the running for the top spot in the AFC North, except for the Bengals, just because based the Ravens, they may falter due to Lamar Jackson's ankle injury, but time will kind of tell on that one. But it's like I said, both teams are currently sitting at seven and six. There's huge AFC wildcard implications going into this game. So Kevin, to kick this one to you in the matchup with the Bengals going up against the Denver Broncos, who do you have coming out on top and why? So, this is kind of the battle of some of the more inconsistent teams in the league. And I know that I said that about Philly and Washington as well. But, I mean, both teams have legit had major upsides and then major downfalls. I believe Cincinnati is uh, a more uh, well-rounded and better constructed team because they started off so well. And I believe that the talent of Joe Burrow can carry them to a victory, but I, I again this is this is this is definitely a tough one. I've been thinking about how to make this decision on who I'm going to pick since we started kind of drafting up the script here, and I've been struggling because there are games where Teddy Bridgewater looks like he can manage a game very well, like last week. Um, there are games like last week where Patrick Sertain and the rest of that defense with Justin Simmons and those boys look like they can lock up anybody, but then again. They played the, the Lions, so you know you have to understand that that's a whole different game. Um, but I, I, I gotta I gotta take I gotta take Joe Burrow. I gotta have some faith that I, I think Joe Burrow is is confident. I think he's a great leader. I think that Jamar Chase is a rookie of the year candidate. I think that that defense is slept on. Uh, Hendrickson has been or H- Hendrickson, the one from the Saints, the the white guy number ninety one. I keep forgetting how to pronounce his last mm-hmm. name. Uh, he, he's been exponential. I believe he's got double-digit sacks on the year. That was one of their big free agent acquisitions. And um, I just think that they're going to be able to make some noise. T. Higgins has been playing great. Tyler Boyd has always been great. The, the, the tight ends that they have out there in Cincinnati with, with CJ and I think Sample is his last name. Uh, but overall, I think they just need to figure out a way to protect Joe Burrow, which has been their biggest challenge all year long is keeping him upright. Um, and then getting Joe Mixon involved early to make sure that they establish that run game. But if I had to make a definitive decision, I got Cincinnati by 10 points, no, not 10 points. I will say seven points. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting game just because this is really kind of a matchup of younger teams that are trying to make a name for themselves. So in this matchup, I'm actually going to favor the Denver Broncos in this one. And I think 
it's based off of the performance that they had last week. And, you know, coming off of the surprise, sudden, tragic death of Demarius Thomas, I thought the Broncos came out last week. They played inspired football and they looked phenomenal from beginning to end in that game. I thought offensively, they were great with Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon. And then on the defensive side of the ball, like you mentioned, I mean, Patrick Sertain, Justin Simmons, and those boys, they played phenomenal, inspired football from beginning to end. And it was one of the best performances that I've seen Denver had the entire year. And I think that that type of motivation and just the momentum that they get from that performance last week, I think it's going to carry over into this one. Now, this is going to be kind of a good test for Denver because they are going up against... A pretty solid Cincinnati offense that's capable of producing some big-time dynamic plays. We've seen Joe Burrow light it up throughout his sophomore season so far, and I think he's done a pretty solid job here and there. And just the dynamic playmaking that he's had with T. Higgins, Jamar Chase, that can not go unnoticed. But I think by and large, I'm just going to favor Denver in this one because I think they're going to be able to get a solid day on the ground from Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon. I do like the fact that Melvin Gordon is utilized for different purposes. Not only can he run the ball effectively, he's a great back in the passing game. So I think if you utilize him for those type of plays, I think it'll be wonders for Denver. And as far as Teddy Bridgewater goes, look, Teddy, Teddy can play solid football at the quarterback position. He doesn't need to light it up. He doesn't need to go out there and throw for 350 yards, 400 yards passing. But if he's efficient, if he's not turning the ball over and he's spreading the ball to his wideouts effectively, I think it'll be enough to get by Cincinnati. This game, I'm actually a little bit more confident in Denver than I've had in some of the other topics or the other games that we've covered. So I think when it comes to this matchup, I've got Denver winning this one by about 10 points in this one. As far as the score goes, I'm going to say Denver wins this one by the score of 30 to 20. I think just based off of the way that they played last week, I think it's going to carry over into this week. And I mean, with the way that Denver's playing, I'm I'm pretty sure at this point that they're a team that I could consider a, a playoff team at this current moment in time. I know the record is in the mix as far as the other wild card teams that are trying to get a wild card spot goes. But I think that if they keep playing inspired football, like they did last week and in certain moments of the season, like they've had this year, I could definitely see them as a, as a wild card team when it's all said and done. I think this win that I'm projecting for Denver is going to be a big one. And um, that would, I think it would be huge for Denver moving forward, going into the last couple of weeks of the season. Again, another example of tough football, um, great games all weekend long. It's going to be incredible starting on Thursday, getting a couple games in on Saturday, and then, of course, the remaining slate on Sunday. And the Monday night game is pretty irrelevant, in, at least in our opinion. No one really cares about that matchup. But um, we will keep you guys posted. Again, we really wanted to record. I know we have another segment, I'm just saying, in terms of NFL topics. Um we really wanted to get this started because we knew that tomorrow's game was so important and I'm going to be kind of busy going around doing some errands in terms of later in the evening. So we wanted to make sure that we were able to cover everything possible, but at the same time, kind of make it a normal episode like we always have in terms of NFL content. So um, if we missed any teams, I mean, just to kind of go over the, this, the total slate of games in terms of importance, 
We talked about the Chiefs and Chargers, Patriots and Colts. The Browns and the Raiders are still very much in the hunt for the playoffs in terms of the wild card. Kyle and I are just absolutely kind of fed up with talking about the Raiders because they just continue to embarrass themselves. Um, and then the Browns' entire lineup, it seems like, has been struck with COVID. I mean, Baker, Jarvis, offensive lineman, Hooper. I mean, you name it, somebody's got COVID on that team. I believe they're in one of they're one of like nine NFL teams in, in, in massive COVID protocols because it's just a massive spread to the entire team. But playoff implications are there, nevertheless. Um, you have the Jets and the Dolphins. The Dolphins are looking to fight their way into the postseason. I know that the Jets aren't doing very well this year, but. The Dolphins are looking to kind of make their presence known. They're still on a win streak as well. Um, the Cowboys and the Giants, the Cowboys uh, are, are dominant. They're kind of trying to continue to solidify themselves as the leader in the NFC East. They don't want to fall to a division rival, let alone the worst team in the division, and let Philadelphia or Washington climb back in. So not necessarily playoff implications, but still, if Dallas loses, that, in, that has something to do with the NFC. Um, and then, of course, Falcons and 49ers. The Falcons are really, really, really on the edge looking in. I mean, like, they have a very small percentage of a chance to get into the postseason. But the Niners are in a wild card spot. And if the Falcons win, they will bump San Francisco out. And the Niners, excuse me, the, the Falcons will then jump into the official hunt to capitalize and put themselves into a position to get in. And then, of course, two of the final games. I know I'm skipping through some other ones, but, again, they're just not really relevant if I'm skipping you get the Packers and the Ravens. Uh, the Packers go into Baltimore looking to continue their dominance. They are now the number one team in the NFC. But with the Ravens being injured, uh, that being Lamar Jackson, still his status in the game being uh, up in the air in question, Kyle and I felt it was best to kind of skip over it because we thought there was a lot more games that could be a little bit more guaranteed to be effective. If Lamar plays, I think it could be a great game. If not, I think, I think you know, no offense to, 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 to Tyler Huntley. I just believe that Aaron Rodgers and those guys are really, really, really on one right now, and they're hungry for a Super Bowl or at least the top seed in the NFC. So that's going to be a decent game. And then finally, the divisional game that makes a difference in the Bucks season, uh, the Saints go into Tampa. Uh, the Saints are looking to spoil any opportunity they can to keep the Bucks away from winning the division that much easier. But if the Bucks win – they clinched the NFC South for the second straight year. Oh, actually, they did not win the NFC That's South really last year. They were the wild card team. So they first uh, time with Tom. But overall, the Bucks are looking to kind of solidify their playoff chances as well. So whole lot of NFL shit going on, whole lot of games. But again, Kyle and I just knew that if we talked about every single game, we'd be here all night. Yeah. But no, I mean – for week fifteen, I mean, this has been one of the best weeks that we've had as far as the slate goes in probably a month and a half. There's been there were seven games that we were contemplating going over in our featured topics this week. So it really kind of goes to show just how deep the slate was for week fifteen going in going in for the NFL. So I figured, you know, five would probably be the best number to kind of settle on for this one just because once you get up to seven games. That's a lot of games to, to cover for, for one episode. But, you know, we figured that five would be more than enough uh, for the episode. So, you know, it's just it really kind of goes to show just how deep week 15 as far as the matchups go, you know, for week 15 in the NFL. I, it, it's going to be a phenomenal weekend in, in the NFL, and I'm definitely going to be excited to watch these games. They're going to be phenomenal to watch. Oh, yeah. But with that said, we're going to transition into our last topic of the episode, and that is going to be 
about the story that popped up on ESPN about the situation that led to the split of Dallas Mavericks cutting ties with former head coach Rick Carlisle. So this was a situation that had been brewing for a couple seasons. And even though that Luka Doncic was the main player uh, at the time for the Dallas Mavericks, it did seem like there was some tension that seemed to be brewing between Luka and Rick Carlisle while both, you know, were, were there. You know, Luka's still there, but Rick Carlisle ended up being removed from head coaching of the Dallas Mavericks. And the story kind of went into the the breakup that led Rick Carlisle to leave, and it kept Luka in Dallas. Kevin, you, you have a lot more, I would assume, in-depth knowledge about this topic. So I'm going to pose the question to you. What do you make about this story of the split between Luca and Rick Carlisle when it came to a head at the end of last year? So obviously everybody knows big Mavs fan, been a Mavs fan since I was a little kid. Um, when Rick decided to step down and he did not get the extension offer that I thought he would, um, I immediately panicked. I said, there's a problem. Donnie Nelson actually got fired and relieved of his duties a week or two before, which caused disgruntled issues to make me believe that Luca would not sign his extension, in which Kyle and I had talked about before NBA free agency had opened. Everything was changing in the offseason and changing drastically to where Luca's camp was saying that they didn't want to comment, to where Rick wanted to fly out to see Luca prepare for the Olympics, but Luca didn't want the distraction and declined Rick to come out to Slovenia because he didn't want to talk to him. So again, I knew there was some tension. I knew there was some frustration. I knew that KP was not happy with the way he was being utilized. But again, disgruntled NBA players and head coaches, superstars always have issues depending on you know how postseasons uh, wrap up, how the season ends up going, you know, incentives and contracts and things of that nature. So I just thought it was typical NBA bullshit. You go and read this article by Tim McMahon. And you find out a whole different side of Rick Carlisle. Guys, I'm not going to give every ounce of information because it's just that much of a long read and it's a lot of information to take in. But long story short, obviously, we had drafted Dennis Smith and Luka Doncic in back-to-back seasons to where we felt that that combination of a backcourt would end up working very well. Uh, Turns out Rick Carlisle didn't want to draft Dennis Smith. Rick Carlisle wanted to draft Donovan Mitchell. So from the jump, Rick was not happy that they had Dennis. Then you go out and you go get Luka Doncic in the draft with the third overall pick. Or should I say, what was it? They drafted Trey with the third pick, and then they get Luka with the fifth or whatever. No, no, no. Actually, it's, it's vice versa. Um, Luka gets drafted third by Atlanta, and then we draft Trey Young, and then we swap. Uh, point blank. There were some early signs that this was not going to mesh very well in the front office. Everybody knew that Dennis being a ball-dominant guard and Luka being a ball-dominant player coming into the NBA was going to be a bit of a clashing issue. Dennis was struggling with his shot consistency from beyond the field. Not the best defender. Um, Luka obviously coming in and being told he was going to be the focal point, the key piece for this franchise in the future, becoming the pillar, potentially the next Dirk, obviously the European connection to Dirk Nowitzki. It, it was just a whole big hoopla of Luka being the man, the baby, the, the guy that they were going to cater to no matter what. Rick already had animosity towards Dennis, but Dennis and Luka were actually really, really close 
during that entire process, after he was drafted and came to Dallas and was finding a house, he actually found an apartment. They lived in the same apartment complex and things of that nature. They were mad cool. Um, Dorian Finney-Smith was always coming over and hanging out with them too. So like the point is there was always uh, rumors that they didn't like one another, but that wasn't the case. What actually had happened, according to this article, was that Rick was blatantly being rude to Dennis, was mistreating Dennis, was being disrespectful to Dennis, and actually made a rumor up that Dennis was jealous of Luca, in which Dennis came out and said to Luca, this isn't true. He publicly embarrassed Dennis at practice in different ways and different manners. Again, all the full details is within the article. But he was causing friction in the locker room amongst his two best players to where Luca didn't like it. Luca did not like how the situation was handled. Then, of course, Dennis gets traded to New York in the whole Kristaps Porzingis trade to where there's bad taste. There's a, there, there's a bad taste left over in Luca's mouth. You know, there's just like, I see what you did there. Like, I see how you handled the situation, but I'm going to let it rock. As time progressed, Luca and Rick actually got into multitudes, a multitude of heated discussions in practice, during games, post-games, to where if you were to zoom in on the Mavericks bench, you can see Luca mouthing off to Rick and Rick just completely disregarding him. Now, I know that that happens. Kobe Bryant and Phil Jackson butt heads. Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, Dennis Rodman butt heads with fucking Phil Jackson. I mean, for God's sake, Shaq butt heads with almost every goddamn coach he's ever had. And I know that nobody bats an eye. But it's different when you're, at the time, 21-year-old superstar that is now the the, the centerpiece of an entire organization who has basically been given the keys to the kingdom as a brand-new adult is coming at you sideways, cursing you out, saying, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why are you pulling me? Why are you subbing me out? To where Luca's disregarding Carlisle's calls late in game saying, I'm doing it my own way. Their relationship was just going at it back and forth. All three years, Luca and, and, and Rick were there. And it started because Rick was mistreating teammates. Rick was not being nice to people that uh, Luca found to be friends. That was Dennis, Solemn Measury. Um, there was an instance, he was, a, he was our seven-footer from another country. I don't want to mispronounce or, or, or misassociate a country. So he, he was uh, a, a, another European player that came from Real Madrid. Obviously, that's, you know, Luca's former team overseas. They had played together for a brief period of time. So he watched Luca actually become a professional from the youth division. So they were actually kind of cool on a personal level before Luca had actually gotten to the league. There was an instance in a game to where Salah Mejri had two points and two technicals within like a, a, a five-minute span, maybe even less, to where Rick said, you have two fucking points, get the fuck out. And, like, embarrassed him. On national TV, the camera was right on him. From that point on, Solemn and Rick had problems as well. And there were a little bit of issues from that point on. But, again, Rick had made some comments in practices. Rick had made some comments during games about him. So, basically, alienating all of these people that Luca was actually really cool with. And Dennis actually confirmed on the article today and said, man, if you guys only knew... This is so true about my time there. Again, paraphrasing. But Dennis actually made a comment to support the story that was written by Tim. Rick failed to comment. Luca failed to comment. And a lot of other players that were currently on the team failed to comment. But there were some comments anonymously from other Mavericks employees that said that Rick was very condescending, very rude. 
Um, there were a lot of times where, where Rick was talking down to other employees and staff members to where he was even considering, um, he was actually fearful of one of the coaches that he put in charge of communicating with the team because they had such bad feelings towards him. The head coach of the Orlando Magic, he was our assistant coach for a while. His last name's Mosley. I can never remember his first name. But um, because the team had felt friction between you know him and the players, he had put Mosley in charge of like community, I guess, team relations and team communication. Rick then got worried that Mosley was aiming for his job. Mosley ended up obviously leaving before Rick stepped away to take the head coaching job in Orlando. So Rick alienated all of these pieces to leave, no matter how much the organization tried to back him, whether that was Mark Cuban, whether that was um, J.J. Barea being an advocate to the players, letting him know that it was different. Um, it turned out a lot of it actually wasn't bullshit. And, that, uh, you know, Rick Carlisle did a lot of things to make Luka Doncic very uncomfortable. And uh, I'm actually kind of shocked as a Mavs fan for a long time and, you know, kind of a Rick Carlisle supporter through the tough times. I'm really, really, like, not disgusted, but just, like, appalled to hear the things that were said. And uh, for Dennis to really, like, come out and say, like, 17 or 20 minutes after the actual article was published and support the article, um, kind of scary, kind of, like, surreal. Like, it, it, it kind of shitted on Rick Carlisle's reputation. And uh, I'm curious to see how this, you know, carries through. But um, I definitely think that there was some truth to this, whether it's exaggerated or not. Well, I mean, the only question that I would ask you is clearly the way that the article was written. It, it, it's definitely portraying Rick Carlisle in a negative light. Now, we're really only hearing it from some some personnel with Dallas. And then obviously, you, you could tell that there was friction with Rick Carlisle, Luka Doncic, Dennis Jr., and... I would consider, you know, another few players did not get along with Rick Carlisle as well. Now, throughout the article, did it ever seem like you were ever getting what Rick Carlisle may have had to say about the situation before he ended up leaving the head coaching spot with Dallas? Because that's really kind of the only thing that I think is kind of missing from this equation. Because, you know, I understand that, you know, what's written in the article is that they're very critical of Rick's style in regards to how he was interacting with some of the players. But did we ever get any sort of reason to why Rick was maybe dealing with those players in a more critical fashion than maybe some of the other players liked it into what actually happened? Not necessarily. I mean, I feel that obviously Rick failing to comment on the story or failing to comment to give, you know, maybe like some support in his own defense to this article being published. Um, you know, the article also did mention that Rick would apologize a few days later after he had calmed down. You know, he would try to extend, um, you know, some kind of uh, some olive branch of some sorts to his players and say, listen, I, I was an asshole. I should have said that. So by no means is this like, Rick being a dick and walking away and not giving a shit about it. You know, like Rick knew that there was tension between him and Luca in which that's why he wanted to go see him, to talk to him in his native country to show I'm willing to travel to Europe in the midst of a pandemic during the Olympics, because I want to show you that I'm invested in you. 
So I thought that that spoke volume of his character to say, you know, like, I don't give a shit how much we're beefing. I need to go fix this. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it, 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 it ended up being on both sides because there is a time where I think that a player needs to know their place. And again, there could be a whole lot more shit that the article wasn't able to explain. But by no means are you should, should you be able to sit there and curse your coach out mid game because you're angry at a substitution or a play call or because something didn't go your way. Luca has been known to be quite the complainer, both in game and out of the game, whether that be referee disagreements on calls, technical fouls, um, complaining on play styles uh, with his teammates and being in, in certain positions he wanted them to be. So I do think that Luca had a part in this, but I do understand why Luca had a, an unresolved kind of like, resu- not resolution, an unresolved kind of tension with Rick because of the way his career started with the issues that had, had arised before he had even gotten there with Dennis Smith Jr. and some other players. Yeah, it's it just, I, I guess kind of like my main question from the article is, I'm not saying that it was like a hit piece on Rick Carla. I, I, I don't want to go that far with it. But did it almost kind of seem like, I'm not saying that the players were exaggerating the situations, but did it seem as awful i'm i'm asking you did it seem as awful as it was being portrayed in the article do you firmly believe that it was as bad as it as what it was said in the article to a certain extent to a certain extent yes because it came from multiple players dennis said something measury said something personnel said something whether that's athletic training staff assistant coaching staff maverick faculty like people at the stadium said that he was being an asshole like when it's coming from multiple sources you know what i'm saying what's the saying if uh if a, if a chicken quack if a chicken cluckles it's a chicken like if a, whatever I, it's another animal the point is you know if it's coming from the same if it's coming from multiple people and it's the same thing i believe there is a definite truth within all of that and the fact that Mosley had left in the manner that he did because he wasn't being offered an actual chance at the head coaching job, I, I, I really do see. I mean, Luca was mad. KP was mad. Coaching staff members were mad. Like, Rick was consistently being kind of an asshole to multiple parties here. And, you know, for this article to come out and then Rick not to comment, that was his only opportunity to really defend himself and for him not to really care. And then Dennis saying what he said, like supporting everything. Dude, I, I got to believe there's a little bit more than average truth here. There's got to be some shit that must have gone down to make this, you know, as bad as it was. Oh, I mean, I, I don't doubt that there were, there were disagreements between all the parties here. It's just, I, I guess the point that, that I'm trying to make is were you of the mindset that, what's written in the article is like, yeah, like you, like you firmly believe that that's what took place. Or do you think that something could have taken place, but it may be a little bit exaggerated in the story that, that was kind of the point that I was like, well, I, I mean, I feel like I've answered it. I, I yeah, guess I'm not wording it properly. It, it's, it's definitely, I, I believe it, Okay, but I okay. don't know if I believe it. I don't know if I believe it a hundred percent, like every single comment, every single article piece, you know what I mean? Because like, for me, it's like, I don't deny the fact that, that that there was some tension brewing between Rick Carlisle and some of the players. It's just that I don't know to what extent of 
the situations were. Meaning, like, were they as dramatic as the story highlights? Like, to me, that's really the main point that, that I'm taking away from is yeah. I, I imagine that, you know, on a business, I don't know about personal relationship stuff, but with just the working relationship that all of these pieces had, it just wasn't working out. And I think the best way that Dallas can move forward is, well, obviously not going to trade Luca. Luca's their franchise piece. You can't get rid of him. So what ended up being the, probably the best case scenario for all parties is that Rick Carlisle was going to be axed just because it didn't seem like he was meshing. Well, with he him. wasn't axed. He stepped away and he, he stepped away he prob- because Mark didn't give him an extension. He had two years remaining on the deal. And once he wasn't extended at that point, he knew for a fact that he was going to probably end up getting it. I- so he stepped away beforehand. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, just, he decided, let me walk out on my own terms before, because Donnie Nelson got fired a week before. So he was like, everyone's going to get cut if Donnie's gone. Well, yeah, because like at that point, it's like, well, maybe the writing's on the wall at that point then. Yeah, the G, that GM had been a part of the organization well before, you know, Rick had ever been there. And if you're going to fire a GM like Donnie, then there's no saving anybody. Yeah. It just seemed like it was going to end one way or another and this is the way that it ended so yeah both like, parties were were destined to separate or split or whatever you, you know phrase you want to use it was kind of inevitable it's just the manner of which how it happened again I, as a Mavs fan you, you you don't want to look at the coach that helped bring a championship your way a guy that was there for 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 a lot of good moments a guy that helped win a lot of games um in that light but it just goes to show you don't know anybody at all, you know, just because they portray a, a good face on the sideline or have good post-game conference interviews or have been featured on Mavs social media pages as being a philanthropist, you know, like a good person. Um, there are some scenes and some traits of people that you may not, you know, may not know of. And it's, uh, again, it was more of a shock to me to read. And the more I read and the further along I got in the comments that you saw from personnel and staff, um, it started to become like the picture started to paint itself and it started to become a, a little bit more believable. Okay. Cool. Still sucks. Yeah. It's just, you know, you just, hate to see it. Yeah. But that was his style. That's just the style that he had when he was coaching there. So, you know, it may have worked back when they were winning a championship back in the early two thousand 2010s, but may not carry over into, 2019 2020 so yeah so, you know it's unfortunate that you know rick ended up stepping down from his position but i think that was probably the best case scenario for all the parties involved without a doubt it is what it is you know i'm grateful to what he was able to provide the organization for the 13 years he was there and of course the impact he had to a lot of players on the team throughout the you know the integrity of his tenure there so mm-hmm. i'll always look at him as the coach that helped bring a chip you know hang the banner but you know if uh the later it got into the year, the later it got into his tenure there, and it got toxic, then, you know, toxicity has got to be eliminated. Can't be having your star and your your, your player kind of like just having all this tension. Yeah, you just consistent bickerment of that. It's not going to provide anything good. Exactly. Kevin, yeah, I think uh, I think I'm burnt out, man. I'm yeah, I'm, 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 po- I'm pooped. I'm about to go walk the pup and then prepare myself mentally for this eternal day that's going to be uh, my Thursday. Yeah. Oh, before we wrap this up, 
Spider-Man's coming out this weekend. What's your expectation? Um, excited. I saw a lot of not reviews, but um, trusted sources of people on social media that I know actually know the comics, know the actual storyline and you know in-depth character analysis of Spider-Man. They all said it was great. They all said it was arguably one of the best Spider-Man movies out that have ever been released. They also said that it was a great MCU film as a whole. So um, I look with optimism, but with me being as opinionated and skeptic, I will say that I'm not over the moon hyped, but I'm definitely like, if I had to put it between a, a, a zero and a 10, probably about a seven. And I'm unfortunately not going to be able to see it because it comes out tomorrow at midnight. And obviously I'll be getting ready to go celebrate with my brother for his birthday. And then while I'm out and about, just in case he sees the episode, I'm not saying what we're doing. Um, you know, while we're doing what we have to do, we're just going to be out and not available to be watching a movie. It's going to be pretty, pretty busy. So I'm going to see if we can watch it. Uh, God willing on Sunday when, uh, when we get back. I'm looking forward to it. I'll probably watch it this weekend. if I got nothing better to do. So I think it'll be, uh, I think it'll be cool to actually just like go to the movie theater again. Be fun. I think it'll be fire. Yes, sir. But, you know, with that said, you guys, uh, we're going to wrap it up from here. As always, we just appreciate the support wherever we can get it, whether it's you guys listening to us on the audio platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We definitely appreciate you guys tuning in to give us a listen. If you guys watched our YouTube content, we definitely appreciate you guys watching it. If you guys want to support the channel in any way, shape, or form, hit that subscribe button below or hit the like button below in any of our videos. Any sort of support that Kevin and I can get for the podcast we definitely appreciate it um pretty much standard from here on out we'll have another episode coming out for you guys in a couple days it'll be most likely just a recap of the week 15 games from this upcoming weekend definitely have a lot to go over we've got some fire matchups this weekend so definitely be a lot to talk about in next week's episode so definitely stay tuned for that kevin you got anything else before we wrap this up no, sir. Everybody, Christmas is coming. Get your stuff while you can. And if you already haven't gotten it, pretty much fucked up, in my opinion. <laughs> you got you to gotta hurry because Christmas is going to be here and it's under 10 days now. So better get Shit. to it. But with that said, you guys, which is once again, thank you guys for tuning in to watch the episode. I'll see you guys later. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30 minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women.